Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink. Tune in your brain. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. How about that for some 8-bit nostalgia, huh? Oh, man, I love it. I'm your host, it's me, Mario. And I am Luigi. And today, we're going to talk about one of the greatest things ever invented, the Nintendo. We're interviewing Jeff Ryan, the writer of the book, Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. And Chris, I know you were excited. I was super excited. Give me your thoughts. Well, this is one subject that you don't get to claim nerdship over because I got to say, I was a NES fan till death. Actually, I can say I have only owned two. Now make that three because I did have an Atari. But so three game consoles in my entire life, NES, Sega, and Atari. That's it. Now, in my mind, you are a traitor because you went from NES to Sega Genesis. Yeah, but I still, but see, they were in similar times, and I still had the Nintendo, which outlasted the Sega. And I played it probably a thousand times more. Okay, fair enough. That works. And and I mean, a lot of this is, as you know, because I went to your house to play video games, because you've had every console ever made, so I just never really needed it. But, you know, needless to say, I was an NES fan. So this interview was incredible. Jeff is, he's an awesome dude, really down to earth. 
fun to talk to, and he knows what he's talking about. In the 1990s, he joined a dot-com many of you may have heard of called Catrillion.com. It was a popular news and entertainment portal for teenagers. The site attracted over 1 million unique visitors a day and provided content for all the big names, AOL, MSN, AT&T, etc. And he was the video game reporter at this company. So he reviewed over 500 games during this time. He then toured Nintendo. He interviewed its top designers. He did a lot of research for this book, and it really shows. It, the book just came out, and it's a fantastic read for anyone, in my opinion, who's ever picked up a game console or a controller. Yeah, especially if you're like me and this guy's your idol. Imagine being a game reviewer and then writing a 304-page hardcover book about Nintendo. I mean, it's it's like every 12-year-old's dream. Well, yeah, that and making out with Alicia Silverstone. Yes. <laughs> but, but I even had to say at one point in the interview, I turned the mic on mute and I said, Roach, shut up and let him talk because you were geeking out. Oh, definitely. I could have talked to this guy for three hours tonight. So yeah, I, I tried to rein it in a little bit, but I was, I was letting the inner nerd come out just a tad. But I mean, that's when you know we had a fun interview when you just want to keep talking. And I feel like we say that a lot. Oh, I could have talked to him longer, but it's because we could talk to them longer. Like I would love to, but for purposes of their time and the sanity of most of our listeners, we try to keep it to a half hour or so. We're going to get to the interview with Jeff here in a minute, but before that, wanted to remind you to head over to Facebook. We've been having a lot of good conversations with our fans over at Facebook. We actually hit 200 likes the other day, but it seems like somebody left. They didn't like us. Yeah, anymore. somebody left us. Somebody unliked us. I don't know what we could have possibly done, but thanks a lot, Dad. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> so yeah, head over, head over there. Shoot us a message, whatever. It's just fun. Somebody requested. They gave us an idea for somebody to interview, and I'm gonna email them in about five minutes. So it's cool. That feedback is awesome. So just check us out, Smart People Podcast on Facebook or at our website, SmartPeoplePodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy. Try not to have too many flashbacks of your childhood and Nintendo raising you. First of all, I just wanted to say for me and John and all of the, the fellow millennials out there, you are my hero because you wrote <laughs> an entire book about Nintendo and ended up making it really interesting. And I have to just first ask, how did this come about and how were you able to sell this idea to a publisher? Well, how it came about was I'm a former video game reviewer. I reviewed about 500 of them for a website that's no longer in business called Catrillion. I started off as a copy editor there, but I was coming in at 8.30 and there wasn't really any editing for me to do until noon. So I was twiddling my thumbs. I asked my editor if there's anything I could do writing-wise in the meanwhile. She gave me a Pokemon press release to write up. And I did, and you know, I'm not expecting to win a Pulitzer Prize for this. But she gets right on the phone and tells the gaming freelancer who did the reviews that we've just hired a gaming expert. And I'm like, uh-oh, that's me, right? Okay, so, uh, so in the early morning time, I started to read as much as possible about the history of video games. I wasn't playing them, and I wasn't trying to you know, learn how to make them, but I was trying to figure out what made them popular what made them, you know, what they are now in our culture, because they weren't even here 40 years ago or 30 years ago even. 
And I realized that you can tell the whole history of video games, more or less, last 30 years at least, by the actions of Nintendo. And you can tell all of the actions of Nintendo just by the actions of their video game hero, Mario. So I had the main character of my book. He just happened to be a fictional plumber. Jeff, I want to take a, a step back real quick. You, you mentioned that you worked for Catrillion. Can you tell us how you got involved in that and how that came about? Catrillion was a website for teenagers. The, the way Catrillion, uh, its business model worked was it published material on America Online's teens page. So if you logged into America Online and you said you were a teen, you went to a specialized homepage with specialized content populated there. And we were one of the vendors that was putting stuff in front of these teenagers' eyeballs. And we quickly figured out that there was this demographical lie about it. Like, did you ever hear that MTV is supposed to be for college-age kids, but it's actually watched by middle schoolers? Like, they're trying to make it seem like everyone 21 to 25 is watching, but the people that are really watching are, you know, 12-year-olds. And the same thing was happening with Catrillion. Because it was a website for teenagers, no teenagers wanted to read it. However, tweens, the people, you know, 8 to 12, they all wanted to read it. And their moms were reading it also. So we had a bunch of 40-year-old women and we had a bunch of 8-year-old girls reading the website for teenagers and exclusively for teenagers. Regardless of how many people were looking at the site, they were all going there via AOL's teens channel. And AOL hit a rough spot around 2002, 2003, which meant that all of the other vendors that were paying them for these premium posting positions, there weren't any premium posting positions anymore because they weren't delivering the traffic. So the site closed down and I moved on to other things. But I, I kept that idea that, that you could tell the whole history of video games coherently without jumping around and having new characters and new, uh, new companies show up every single chapter right that's what i tried to do with mario yeah and uh, i do want to get in your book which just came out called super mario how nintendo conquered america along along the lines of that book i, I did want to get back to the question D did you approach a publisher or did you have somebody in mind or did you just say look i know a lot about video games nintendo is incredible i want to write a book about it i had originally been working on another uh book about video games which would be a, more of a coffee table book. But there's a whole parallel publishing world for coffee table books, where basically the publishers go up to the authors and say, hey, we want to make a book about Elvis. You're an Elvis expert, so write the book. It's not that the Elvis expert goes to the, uh, to the book publisher and says, hey, I want to write a book about Elvis. It's just not the way it works. Okay, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know how all that worked, actually, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be interesting uh, or if it would be cut, but uh, they're called book packagers instead of book publishers. And one unusual thing about them is that the books aren't returnable. So if you order 100 Dean Koontz books and sell like 20 of them, the other 80 gets sent back to the publisher and Barnes & Noble doesn't need to pay for it. Oh, no, that actually is interesting, honestly, because aside from learning about, you know, the, the topic at hand, really, I just am interested because I've never written a book, but obviously would like to. So these are things we pick up along the way, you know? I think if you had the right idea and went to the right book packager with the idea and said that, you know, you can secure all the image rights and it would take you only three months and you're, you know, you'd be fine with getting $10,000 for it, then they, uh, then they might be able to play ball if you can convince them. But they're normally the ones who uh, come up with the business plan instead of you. 
Anyways, because they can't return books, if Barnes & Noble buys 80 copies, they're stuck with 80 copies of them, which is why they only order like four copies. And if they only sell three, the last one or two goes on the remainder shelves, which is why if you look at the Barnes & Noble remainder shelves, it's filled with these big, beautiful, gorgeous, full-color illustrated books. Because those are all the book packager books. How did you go about researching for this book? I mean, I know you must love video games from doing all the video game reviews, but how did you decide specifically on Nintendo and then move forward and get all the information that you were able to get for the book? Well, Nintendo, picking Nintendo seemed like kind of a, an easy choice because it's the company that's been around the longest. If you write something about Sega, the, the story just kind of ends around 2001 because that's when Sega stops making hardware. If you tell a story about Microsoft, Microsoft wasn't around until 2001 as a console maker. So Nintendo has been there the whole time. And I decided I wanted to read as much as possible and make as many notes as much as possible before I approached Nintendo for, uh, for what was going to be a series of interviews with all of the different key business and creative executives. One of the main sources is a book called Game Over by David Sheff, which came out in 93 or 94. And Nintendo actually sued Random House, the publishers, because it had Mario on the cover. And it was, it was their intellectual property. So there's a new cover that came out that's just a kid looking at a TV and there's no Mario on it. But doesn't uh, your book have Mario on the cover? Ah, yes. But if you look very closely, Mario was wearing gloves. And he's designed like the, the small Mario from the beginning of Super Mario Brothers. And that Super Mario in the beginning of Super Mario Brothers doesn't wear gloves. Therefore, our Mario is an original art creation and not no a way. Nintendo one. Yep. No way. Wow. That's enough to change it. That's yeah. amazing. That is so good. what you're looking at is a, an original interpretation of Mario instead of a, a classic. Mario. I like it. Well, I guess, let's see, I have two things here, but I'll go with you chose Super Mario, as you mentioned, and he is a plumber, and it is fantastic, and you draw the parallels really well. How, you know, I was talking to somebody last night about this interview that we had coming up, and I said, if you would have told somebody before Super Mario came out that you were going to do a video game about a fat plumber who runs around hitting his head on boxes of coins and eating mushrooms, you know, somebody would say you're probably in the middle of an acid trip. But it right. ended up being such a fantastic game. And I know you go into that in your book. Could you explain to us why that is? Well, Mario isn't really about uh, a plumber jumping on turtles and, and living fungus and jumping through giant green pipes. Because that's what the Super Mario Brothers movie turned out to be. And the Super Mario Brothers movie is pretty terrible. But what Mario is really about is exploration. Mario is simply a, an avatar. He's there because we can't be there in person. So when Mario moves, we move. It's really no different than when you're driving a car and you kind of, you know, expand your body to, to fit in the car so that if someone hits your car, you say, hey, someone hit me. Instead of saying, hey, someone hit my car, you're, you know, you're extending what you think of as you to, to be the whole vehicle. And when right. you're playing Mario, you're extending what you think of as you to be Mario. I get it. It's actually funny with, with Mario, too, because, I mean, you... You bring up the fact in Super Mario Brothers 3 that it, you don't have to go to every level to get to the boss. And I mean, we're going to get kind of dorky here, but this is why I really wanted to talk to you. Yeah, dork uh, it up. <laughs> and 
I mean, there's there's plenty of YouTube videos out there where you see people that beat those games in you know twenty thirty minutes or less. Yeah, uh, the speed run. All these speed runs, but I remember as a kid, Super Mario Brothers three was next to impossible to beat the entire thing by going to every single board. So I understand what you're talking about with with the Avatar thing because you go through and you explore, you got so many hours of enjoyment out of it, whereas the game really only takes 15 minutes to beat if you do it right. Right. First, I have to say that Super Mario Brothers 3 is not just my favorite Mario game, but my all-time favorite video game. Oh, it's the greatest game ever made. And yes. Nintendo did, so good. Yeah, Nintendo did the best thing when they pretty much had an hour and a half commercial in The Wizard. With the you may be one of the few people that appreciates that movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was purely a Nintendo commercial. It was great. Yeah, and the people that financed that movie, Universal, were the same people who about a decade earlier had sued Nintendo because they said that Donkey Kong was too similar to King Kong. Oh wow, I had no idea. Yeah, so within 10 years, Universal went from uh, suing this little upstart with a bunch of money that it thought it could knock over to saying, hey, how about if we make an hour and a half long commercial because we think enough people will watch it and pay money for it that we can uh, kind of coast off of your wake. Let's go back to the beginning because you dedicate a good portion of your book to Nintendo's creators, the management, and the genius that they, that they were, that they portrayed can you explain to us what these masterminds did that was so incredible? Well, the the first real incredible thing was uh, was I think what uh, Shigeru Miyamoto made. Uh, Shigeru Miyamoto was the man who designed Super Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong and a whole bunch of other Nintendo games. And he was not a video game designer. He was working at Nintendo, but he was an industrial engineer, meaning he was making the casings and the hardware that some of their uh, products went into. And I think he was painting some of the cabinets. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the creative type. He was more of the, the fix-it guy. And they had a real problem that needed fixing because they had made this Space Invaders knockoff called Radar Scope. And they took a big bet. They made 3,000 copies of it and shipped all of these arcade cabinets to America and they couldn't sell them. So instead of just moving on to the next game, they had spent all this money, had all this inventory, and they didn't know what to do with it. So the, the really creative thing was deciding to take out the game, keep the cabinet, and make a new game that would use the same architecture so that you could just slam in a new motherboard and hook up the wires, and you had a new game ready to go. And all of the other Nintendo game designers were busy. They had their scheduled game releases, and they had their, their scheduled work to do. So there was a contest at Nintendo to see who could come up with the best idea. And Shigeru Miyamoto came up with like a dozen ideas. And so they picked one of them and went with it. That idea was Popeye. But the Popeye idea, while it was solid, it didn't work because Nintendo didn't eventually have the licensing rights. They did get them, and there is a Popeye game that came out that plays kind of similar to Donkey Kong. But that's not for another year or two. So they took the idea of, of a Popeye game, and they just did what's called a uh, sprite swap in video games. So the Popeye character was taken out and was replaced with what we know of now as Mario. The Bluto character was taken out and replaced with Donkey Kong because he's much, much bigger than Mario. And Olive Oil was taken out and was replaced by the heroine of Donkey Kong, whose name is Pauline. Everyone tends to uh, forget about her because of Princess Toadstool stealing all the glory. So that was Mario's official debut in, a, in video games. 
Yes, and he was originally just called Jumpman. They didn't even bother giving him a name because the idea that he was going to be an avatar was so prevalent that they didn't want to give him, you know, if he had a regular name, he was a regular guy. Therefore, he was someone. They didn't want him to be someone. He could just be this this blob. When the uh, Nintendo had a series of handheld games called Game & Watch that came out, and there's this, this character in there who's just kind of like an oil flick, like a, you know, a walking oil flick. And his name is Mr. Game and & Watch. And they were trying for that sort of, of super generic feel for uh, Mario as well. But they ended up making him look rather specific. He kind of looks like, uh, like how Shigeru Miyamoto looked. He had like wild, crazy uh, black hair. He's wearing a hat just because they couldn't do hair that well. He has a mustache on because, once again, the graphics were so bad that they couldn't show a mouth without, you know, stressing the system too much. So it was easier to show a mustache, which suggests a mouth without having to draw a mouth. And they did overalls just because it was easier to make that than, uh, than a shirt and pants. Because you can keep one color going and just put one dot in for a button, and hey, it's overalls. I actually think I had one of those watches. I think it was one of the gold versions, and it was a, a Donkey Kong version. I used to remember playing that thing all the time. But how many games would you estimate now that Mario has actually appeared in? Mario has appeared in over 200 games now. And sometimes he's the star, and sometimes he's like one of the, one of the Mario cast. Sometimes he's just there as a cameo. Like He shows up in uh, SSX Tricky, one of the snowboarding games. And I, I was trying to make a Facebook question of uh, how many of these Mario games have you played, but Facebook limits you to only 100 questions. So I got at the end, and I hadn't put nearly all the Mario games in there. I hadn't even put, like, you know, some of my favorite ones. So someone actually emailed me complaining that Super Smash Bros. Brawl was on there. And I'm like, I know, it's a great game, but I ran out. <laughs> you know, I guess that's kind of, that's an answer to this question I had, but I want to go in more is the the subtitle, How Nintendo Conquered America. And you give a statistic in your book I don't remember the exact one, but you talk about how many copies Super Mario sold versus like Halo and I don't know, a bunch of other crazy games. And it, it literally blows my mind. I cannot understand how it's destroyed any other game, basically. So is that what you talk about when you talk about conquering America? And if not, what what do you mean by that? That's one of the things that uh, that I was uh, referring to. Another thing is the, the prevalence of video games and culture. Going back 30 years ago, video games were something that you would visit an arcade and maybe save up some money for a couple of days and drop your allowance playing a video game. Then you would go home and do homework or watch TV or play a board game. And as Nintendo came in, they brought the, the, the video game home, and then they were able to bring it on the road when they made the Game Boy and they were able to make it a social activity because they had two controllers instead of one. And most of the, the gaming innovations where games are more prevalent in our life were because of Nintendo. They were one of the big leaders behind the casual game movement, which has been a huge success for the DS and the Wii, taking people that aren't normally considered video game players and saying, hey, you're still you're still able to, you know, buy our products, buy our software, and still play games. You don't need to be shooting people and saving the world. You can just play Big Brain Academy, and that's okay. You can just play We Fit. We don't feel, you know, we don't think you're a lesser person if you don't want to 
play Metal Gear. You brought up the Wii there, and the Wii actually was leading the console wars for a while. And I guess at a certain point, the market really got saturated where all the old people and really young people who wanted to get into casual games were able to do so and bought their Wii, and then there was really no more market for it. What do you think, or why do you think Nintendo kind of does this where they... They, they sit back on their success. They did the same with, with Super Mario when Sonic first came out. And then they did the same thing with the N64 and the PlayStation and Sega Saturn came out. And now we have the same thing with the Nintendo Wii where Microsoft and, and Sony have really leapfrogged them. And they, they kind of sat back for a little bit and then announced, you know, the, the new Wii U coming out. But is there is it a cultural thing or is it something that's their business practice of why they they kind of just ride the coattails of success for a little bit and don't really worry about their competitors until they truly start losing in the, in the race. Yeah. I think it's another form of, of classical leadership where you're not really paying attention to what other people are doing. You have your own five-year plan, your own 10-year plan, and you're going to keep at this regardless of the fact that, you know, six months ago, someone, someone came up with a fantastic video game idea and now five people are copying it and they're all making tens of millions of dollars, you will not copy them. You will keep on doing what you're doing even though no one seems to want to buy it because deep down inside you think that this is going to work and that will, that gut instinct has been right the last 18 times in a row. So you're going to follow that instead of any other more reasonable way of uh, following the marketplace. Gotcha. And I, I kind of saw that with the Nintendo 3DS where they – released it at $250, didn't sell that well, and they've already lowered it down to a, around 170 But it seems like they're set on this thing becoming a success, especially in the United States. Yeah, they, they really need it to be a success because their biggest competitor right now isn't Microsoft and it's not PlayStation, it's Apple. Apple was just, uh, someone did a value fluctuation and figured out that Apple is now the richest company in America or the the richest company in the world, I think. It beat out a oil company. And one of the ways Apple has made money is by its app store, where it sells a whole bunch of, of games incredibly cheaply. And for the last 30 years, Nintendo has been selling games for about $40, $50 a pop. And Microsoft and Sony and Sega and various other people came and said, hey, we're making better games at $40, $50 a pop. And Nintendo was able to compete with them by saying, hey, our quality is different, our quality is better, we're making different style of games. But everyone agreed on the price point. And what Apple is doing is changing the price point. So all of a sudden, people start thinking, well, I don't want to buy a Mario game. That's $40, $50. I can just get Angry Birds. What is that, $5? And that is, is I think, the biggest threat Nintendo has seen maybe ever. The fact that the way it's, it's pricing things to succeed it normally prices things a little higher than they should be, and it costs them a lot less to make it than you would think. And this is this is pulling the rug out from you know 30 years of video game dominance. Do you think that Nintendo can succeed with with this price war? I guess because when you look at the games that are produced for a dollar or five dollars on the App Store, it takes way less of a budget and way less man hours than those games that that Nintendo puts together. I mean, some Nintendo games take years and hundreds of people to complete. Do you see Nintendo having to drop the price of their casual games and then they'll just make their AAA titles 40 or 50 bucks? Or what do you see them doing to compete? 
I don't think they're they're going to be dropping the price. I think that's that's you know giving up the king instead of uh, sacrificing any foot soldiers. That's their 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 main bread and butter. I mean, they always had the backup plan of making video games for Sega and Sony and Nintendo. Oh, I said Sega. They're not going to make games for Sega anymore. <laughs> I, I'm I'm thinking about the whole history of Nintendo, and I forgot that Sega wasn't around making consoles. <laughs> I always but, wanted to see a Nintendo game on the Dreamcast, but never happened. But now you can see a Sonic game on the Wii. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that they would sooner take Mario and put him in a PlayStation 3 game than they would drop the price so dramatically to start competing with Apple because they would just they'd lose too much revenue and they'd reset what people consider the, the price of the game. Well, I wanted to, because while we have you on the podcast, I, I just got to say... I am still uh, the biggest fan. My favorite games ever were, well, my favorite game ever was Baseball Stars. And it bothers me that no game console since then has been able to make a good baseball game. There hasn't been one. And I don't understand why it's so hard. And then there's games like Contra and Bubble Bobble, which will always be classics. And I feel like nothing will ever match it. Is that just me being nostalgic? Or was there really something to those games that, that Nintendo figured out? There was definitely something to gameplay that was uh, peculiar to the 1980s. If you just take like a random sampling of a dozen Atari 2600 games, you don't have two that would, that would like fit into the same box nowadays. But if you take a dozen PlayStation 3 games, you can put almost all of them in the same box. They're third person. You understand what you're doing. You're moving around. It's like a collection slash shooting game. That's what almost all games are. They're all third person games. And because the graphics weren't around to support something like that, they needed to come up with much stronger gameplay in the 2600 games. And Nintendo did the, the same thing with the NES. With the SNES, you started to see uh, like a homogenization of the type of games that you were playing. For the most part, there were still innovations like Star Fox. And then the N64 opened up the whole new world of having, you know, a 3D game to explore with uh, Mario 64 and then the first Zelda game. But since then, things have gotten kind of stale. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why the Wii was so successful, because it brought back new ways of thinking about games. If you try to play, a, you know, a classic side-scroller like Castlevania using the Wii, it's kind of pointless because maybe you can shake the control a little bit, but you don't have the motion control like, like you would. But if you're actually swinging a sword or, in Castlevania's case, swinging a whip, then you're doing something you haven't done in any other Castlevania game. It's changing the, the style of the game. Now it's actually a whip game. And the other Castlevania games, you're using a whip, but you know, you're not thinking in terms of whip physics. You're just thinking in terms of reach. I do have to say, too, I'm a, I'm a Wii apologist. I bought a Wii when it came out. I enjoyed it. There was a couple of gimmicky games. The, the Wii Sports was great. Um, I liked waving a controller around just to show my family and friends and stuff. But the greatest thing that they did was put the virtual console on there where you could download all, you know, all the old Nintendo games yeah. and go out and get one of the old Nintendo-style pads and I found myself using that basically as a Nintendo emulator and taking more of my time than, say, Halo or Fallout or any of those games that you know took 50 or 60 hours just to beat, where I could sit down with this game and run around with Mario for an hour or two and be perfectly content. 
Right. Do you think about the, you know, the hundreds and thousands and millions of man hours that went into making something like Fallout 3 and then you load a bubble bobble and you're like, I'd rather just play bubble bobble. Everybody should. That's the best game. <laughs> I know. And that's the beauty of it. But uh, I know we're, we're, we're getting to the end of the time here, but I really wanted to ask you what you think the future of gaming in general is, not just for Nintendo, but where are we going? I like to get excited about what I can look forward to. Right before the Wii U came out, there's all sorts of rumors about what the, the next Wii was going to be, the, the Weequel, they were calling it. And I had what I thought was a, a foolproof, ironclad guarantee of what this was going to be, and it was going to be a hologram projector. And I came up with all of these different gameplay options you could do based on the idea that you had a little thing that kind of looked like a telephone sitting in, on your coffee table, and it could shoot up light. And you wouldn't be able to touch the light, but if you put your finger in, it would react. So let's say you have a target and you put your finger in and it, you know, it breaks the target, but the target is moving. So you need to be fast enough to, to hit all of the different targets. You could come up with a huge variety of gameplay using holograms. And Nintendo has shown holograms in use at certain trade shows. So I know they're working on this technology. It's obviously not ready. And Nintendo is a uh, habitually cheap company. So they're not going to release something unless they can release it relatively cheaply. So if it's around now, but it would cost a thousand dollars, it's basically not ready yet. It'll I be want ready. that. It'll I want that so bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you if you think of something like Super Mario Galaxy and how Mario could run around a 3D structure like you know like a whole little mini planet, imagine having the mini planet floating in your living room and you having to walk all around. 360 degrees to see Mario as he's going around and having to physically push objects out of his way so he could jump on things. Maybe he could even jump in your hand and then you could, you know, move him around. There's, there's a whole world of gameplay that a hologram would offer. That sounds absolutely amazing. And if it's not, if it's not a, another virtual boy, I'll, I'll be completely fine with it. <laughs> I had a virtual boy for maybe two days oh, and wow. Then I wanted to show it to someone, and they tripped on the cord and fell down. I heard just the tiniest little tinkle, and that was the end of the virtual boy. Probably saved you from migraines and headaches and bad eyesight, though, so <laughs> don't yeah. worry. Yeah, and playing Mario Clash. Yeah, I had one more quick question. I wanted to get your top, I don't know, three Nintendo games. And if it's too hard, uh, don't worry about it, but if you've got them at the tip of your tongue, let, let's go for it. I started to play during the NES years, so I'm I'm a stalwart of the, the NES. And I said Super Mario 3 was my favorite all-time video game, so it has to stay number one. The original Dragon Warrior, I've played through multiple times. It's, it's so much fun. It started the whole Japanese RPG idea, but it kind of led to Nintendo Power because it was given away for free in a Shonen Jump ad in Japan, and that became so popular that Nintendo realized they could make a whole magazine about video games just to, to stoke people's interest in upcoming titles. And that began Nintendo Power, which was sent out for free to everyone. And if I had to pick one more game, I think I'd have to go with the original Legend of Zelda, because it's a nice. little bit of everything. It's an action game, it's an adventure game, it's a mystery, it's a romance, it's an epic. Zelda was so hard. Like, just thinking about Zelda, I get pissed off. <laughs> I just do. But anyways, Jeff, again, thank you so much for your time. Your book, Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America, is awesome. It's a must-read for anyone who's ever picked up a joystick or game of any kind because 
it is like a true patriotic book in my in my opinion. Um, <laughs> is there anyone? Yeah, exactly. Is is there anywhere else you'd like to kind of guide our listeners? Do you have a website or do you blog? Do you write often? All that good stuff. Yeah, I actually blog every day at supermariobook.com, just stuff about Mario. And I send Twitter things out at Daily Mario. So the the one best Mario thing a day I write up and all the others I throw on Daily Mario. That's 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 awesome. Again, thank you so much. This was of so much fun to do. And best of luck with the book. I hope it's the best seller. Thank you, Chris and John. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Jeff. As a reminder, you can pick up his book, Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America, at bookstores such as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Borders. There are still any Borders in your area left. Burn. Burn. Yeah, burn. Head head over to our website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. Click on the Amazon banner and order his book through there. You know, kill two birds with one stone. Get it this awesome book and give us a few dollars. It works. Yeah, for those of you that don't understand John's cryptic explanation, if you order through our Amazon widget, anything and everything, we get a 6% kickback from Amazon, no cost to you. It's the only way we're keeping afloat, so we really do appreciate it. So as you end this podcast and you think about whatever you're going to think about, just remember all those fantastic memories that games that we mentioned, such as Super Mario, Zelda, Bubble Bobble, Contra, all those memories they gave you, and just, you know, just reminisce. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start. Ah, Nintendo, such sweet, sweet memories. So Chris and I decided to keep the microphones on as we finished up our conversation with Jeff Ryan. We just sat on the mics, reminisced about how much we loved Nintendo, what some of our favorite games were, and just what feelings the Nintendo brought back for us today. You can check out what we had to say. It's over at the website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. It's free. It's fun. Just go ahead and download it.